Welcome to Rigo's Business Review, where we bring you the latest in leadership, business, and tech. I'm your host, Carl Rigo. Join us each week as we share unexpected insights and underreported stories from the world of business to inform, uplift, and inspire, and make you think. Thank you for tuning in for season two of the podcast. In this episode, we're delighted to interview Rodney Schwartz, founder of Europe's largest impact investment bank, Clearly So, which stands for Clearly Social, where he raised $1 billion for enterprises that work to create a more sustainable and just society. Yes, that's the people, planet, and prosperity agenda. We'll cover Rod's journey from an equity analyst on Wall Street in the 1980s to founding that leading investment, impact investment bank to his current fascination with innovation and politics. We'll hear insights from his first-hand experience during the great finance revolution and the explosion in financial innovation that happened from the 1980s to the subsequent boom in impact investment, which has seen a 100-fold increase in assets under management in the industry in the last eight years, going from $8 billion to $800 billion in assets under management deemed as impact investments. Discussion includes a number of anecdotes, including Rod's job interview with the legendary Dick Fold of Lehman Brothers, to his time as chair of Just Giving, fundraising platform for nonprofit organizations, which inspired him to go on to found that leading impact investment bank, Clearly Social. And we'll hear Rod's definition of what impact means in the investment space. We then turn to the subject of innovation in politics, where we discuss what really led to the fall of the Berlin Wall, a little-known breakthrough arising from a seminal moment between Reagan and Gorbachev, and what it tells us about how we can turn down the temperature in public discourse today to change it from generating more heat than light to the opposite, more in, to have it be more enlightening and less agitating. But first, we want to thank you for your continued support. In Season 1, we reached listeners on five continents. We want to give a shout out to our supporters in the UK, US, and Germany in particular, as well as those in areas where we are most popular, including London, England, Seattle, Washington, Dallas, Texas, Columbus, Ohio, the state of New Jersey, of course, and Los Angeles and Santa Monica and California. Thank you to you and all of our listeners around the globe. This season will feature more interviews and guest appearances, and we'll dive into topics like sustainability and ESG, impact investing, and trends in technology, private equity and venture capital, and so much more. And we'll continue to cover it all from a human lens, including topics like why is organizational change hard and how can we bring more of our full selves to work? Lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating. It helps us to reach more people. And now, on with the show. So I have a treat this episode. We've got uh, a wonderful guest who's agreed to join us. We've got Rodney Schwartz, who is an, a finance industry veteran. He's been in the investment industry since, since 1980. He's been yeah. an analyst, strategic consultant, senior manager, corporate advisor, venture capitalist, and entrepreneur, uh, which has given him substantial experience in what makes companies succeed or fail through hundreds of, hundreds of observations. Uh, since 1999, he specialized in the emerging impact investment field and founded Clearly So. Which, was, which is Europe's leading impact investment bank, 
which intermediates capital from investors to high impact funds and enterprises. He still mentors and advises uh, impact funds and enterprises, but has decided to take two years out to study for uh, an MSc degree in democracy and comparative politics at UCL London. Rod, welcome to, to our podcast. It's a pleasure to have you this, this episode. Thank, thank you, Carl. It's really great to be with you this afternoon. So, Rod, I, I know you've had quite a, 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 an interesting and varied career. We're going to talk about your career journey and plus your thoughts on innovation and what you're up to now. However, given your current field of study, I thought we'd start with the, the unfortunate reality here in Europe, which is we woke up this week to a Europe at war. And now, given given your experience in history, in history and, and what you're currently studying, I'm just curious to have your your views on on the reality we're facing now. Well, obviously, the scenes in Ukraine are absolutely tragic, and uh, you know, you and I to have lived in in the West all this time, free of war, you know, and to see that suddenly come to an end is really depressing. Um, I, I know it's kind of informed to really. Uh, accuse Putin of being a monster and all that sort of stuff. But I'm old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, uh, I remember the United States, which is the country I was born in, almost going to war because uh, Cuba was going to have some missiles uh, 90 miles off the coast. And I think we're very sensitive about that in the United States. And I think we have not really taken into account how sensitive Russia might feel about the continuing encroachment of NATO eastward. We might say to ourselves, he was going to do this anyway, and he's evil, and he's crazy, and all this sort of stuff. But I think it's really important to see the other guy's perspective in conflicts. And, and now I live in Britain, as you know, mm. you know Britain's really worked up about uh, sovereignty, and I understand we're rightly enraged that he has invaded, Putin has invaded a sovereign country. But also last week in the newspaper, something very few people have talked about is the Chagos Islands, which we are occupying illegally, contrary to a UN court uh, uh, a decision. Um, and that's where Diego Garcia is and all that. So I think, uh, I think the West, um, I think should respond now, but I think we just have to be wary of being uh, maybe a little bit hypocritical sometimes. Hope that's not too controversial a way to start this episode. Uh, Rod, I think I think it's great that we invited you on to hear your views, and so you're not shy. We talked about it as two kind of. I think we're, we both spent a lot of time. I, I was born in the Northeast, and the U.S. has spent a lot of time there, so we're pretty straight shooters. That's one of the things I like about you. <laughs> so I think it's fair enough. So let's maybe we could talk about how kind of maybe a headline on how you ended up where you are now. And then we'll, we'll kind of go back in a little more detail about your career journey because to me it's fascinating. Great. Um, so how did I wind up where I am now? Well, I decided that after having had a few careers, as you've pointed out in your introduction, one of the things I realized was that I haven't really formally learned anything in decades. You know, I had my MBA, I finished that in 1980, and I haven't sat in a classroom really since 1980, and that's ridiculous. So uh, I, I decided a few years ago it was something I wanted to do, and it just took some time to organize. So now I'm, as you said, studying uh, for a master's in democracy and comparative politics at UCL. 
I cannot imagine a more interesting time to study democracy or the lack thereof all around the world and even in the West, you know, our notions of the democracies we live in are changing very rapidly. And, uh, you know, we've seen some really um, very odd things even in our countries. And uh, that's, I think, so there's lots of political things shaking us up right now. And I can't think of a better time to hit the books and look into that a little bit more. Also, that's I great. needed a break, you know, I needed a break. Yeah, when we last talked, uh, I guess it was in December, and, and I asked, I said, well, so what is it, What? how would you characterize this break? I said, is it a bit of a sabbatical? He said, well, I think, you know, you're, you're open, it was it was kind of, so I'm not quite sure what it is yet, it's taking shape, and now you're a few months further in. I do have a, I do want to ask you, maybe you can talk about it now or perhaps later, but, you know, what's most interesting, one of the most interesting things that you've, you've learned so far, and maybe a favorite kind of... Uh, subject or something where you're seeing if things are coalescing a bit for you if, if you have a sense of that maybe it's too early to say but yeah so it is it is a bit early to say and i've promised myself that i would give myself a year before i even tried to make much sense of it um, the one thing that i am finding really quite interesting is how if you put democracies on a spectrum um, it's not a barbell distribution, which is how we, I think, used to see the world. There are there are Western democracies over here, and they're all angelic, and there are the evil communist countries over here, and they're all hideous and horrible and uh, dangerous. And what I what I see now is that it's well, maybe North Korea aside, it's a bit of a bell curve, and that we're all somewhere along the spectrum. So that's been the most eye opening to me. Uh, in terms of what I'm most interested in, it's how the political arena has been so immune from innovation. So we've seen innovation in financial services, which I studied. We've seen innovation in the investment markets uh, around impact, which you and I are passionate about. Mm -hmm. So many sectors, media, retail, utterly transformed through technology and innovation. And politics hasn't changed at all. And it's not because it's working well. So what the hell is going on? That's what I'm interested in. <laughs> Great. Wow. Okay. So that's where that's kind of the forward-looking view of things. So if we can, I, I'm dying to get into to to, to, to some of this uh, the whole conversation, but particularly when we get to the middle part about the deal making and things. But right. if we go back, take take us back to an earlier in your career, and you you know, so tell us a kind of if you go from the beginning, basically, kind of. In terms of, if you want to tell us a bit about your background, how you grew up, or whatever you whatever you want to cover there, and kind of what made you choose to study whatever you studied, and then you came out, and was it your your first role there, that equity research analyst? Sure. So, um, grew up in New York. Um, the idea was that when I left business school, I was going to work for my father. Um, that was the thought. And uh, I did what was called a 3-2 program, which meant you could do university and business school in five years instead of six. So mm. I was on, on a tear to get out and start working. Um, and then a few months before I graduated, I decided, what am I doing? I don't want to work for my dad. And uh, uh, this was at a time, I mean, all the interviewing had more or less finished. And I really didn't have a clear career aspiration as such. Uh, but Payne Weber was as disorganized as I was, and they turned up late 
at the University of Rochester Simon School, and I interviewed, and that's how I wound up on Wall Street. So it wasn't more thoughtful than that. That was not a time when Wall Street was booming. Uh, um, I can remember investment banks were small. Uh, their market caps were teeny. Um, the Dow was, uh, I think it wasn't even a thousand. Uh, so we're really talking about pre-bull market, pre-interest rates plummeting. Um, so that was how I wound up there. I did. I spent a year as an internal kind of uh, consulting resource at Payne Weber, and then uh, the guy who was, I guess, my sponsor said, you should be an analyst. And I said no, but I didn't really seem to get much of a choice. So that's how I became an equity research analyst. And I was lucky because, again, not through choice, but I was flung into the financial services sector at a time as I said, before the boom took off. So I was able to see the whole financial services revolution from the start, from you know what things looked like in a bear market, a long bear market, to you know just everybody participating. And uh, I, I saw really a revolution in investing, financial markets, banking, insurance, uh, credit cards, et cetera. And that was really, really exciting. So I think I was very lucky um, you know, I, I followed stocks like American Express and Morgan Stanley and things like that, T. Rowe mm-hmm. Price. Um, so I saw things through that period, and it gave me a passion for trying to understand innovation and radical change and, uh, you know, yeah, just what can happen when markets are moving. So that's the start of it. Um, and then I carried on as an analyst for quite some time, decided, uh, as we've talked about, uh, to come live in Europe for a while. Uh, initially, it was going to be just for a while. It turned out to be forever. <clears throat> but I left the United States in 1987, came to work for, actually started with Payne Weber in London, but was quickly hired by Lehman uh, through a variety of uh, developments. I wound up uh, uh, running the equity business for Lehman Brothers in Europe uh, and also global emerging market equities because at that time, Nobody really was much interested in emerging markets, just to show you how long ago that was. Um, And I did that till the mid-90s, then spent a bit of time at Paribas, and then decided to leave, let's call it a proper job, uh, and, you know, started as a VC, and then eventually founded this investment bank that you referred to called Clearly So. So any of that you'd like to explore in more depth, I'd be delighted to. Yeah, wow. I was just scribbling some notes as we were talking there because that's kind of coincides with the, the period of, um, you know, uh, was it Michael Lewis and Liars Poker and all of the, in terms of the bond markets. And then, you know, we had the, the, the stock market crashes during that time and so much in there. And also the, the rise of the, um, say, high yield debt or the junk, you know, the junk bonds, the, the Drexel Burnham, all that, the barbarians at the gate, all that stuff. And the exciting thing about this, uh, and and, the, and one of the things I really feel so fortunate to have experienced is that as an analyst who followed the financial service sector, I met these guys. So I met Dick Fold and Sandy Weil and, and uh, all these people that one read, John Goodfriend uh, and, um, and some, you know, Alan Greenberg. I mean, these people were legends. Uh, some of them... Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, really great managers, some of them just lucky. 
but it, it's Peter Cohen. I mean, I was just thinking of all of them, and it's been really wonderful to have seen all that kind of from the inside as an employee of the sector, but also as an analyst of the sector. I think it's the, the thing when I look back on my life from a professional standpoint, I'll probably be the most grateful for. Wow, even me, I'm tempted to, to pull out the, the, the table of contents from my, my, my copy of Barbarians at the Gate because a lot of those gentlemen are mentioned in there. Yeah, no. Legendary. So, I, I mean, yeah, if there's anything you wanted to, any, any anecdote about it, I could see you smile. Any kind of interesting or, or uh, really uh, illustrative sort of story or something that you think really captures the, the, the zeitgeist of the time when you were there, anything or? Well, you put him on the spot, and okay. maybe I shouldn't say this story, but, I'll, right. but I will anyway and throw caution <laughs> to the wind. Okay. So eventually, um, I was – so I became an analyst, and I went to Lehman, and I was doing a bunch of things at Lehman. But then a, a bunch of people thought it would be a good idea if I would run the equity business. I was quite young at the time. I was, I was probably, I don't know, 33 or something like that. But I guess the people felt that having studied the investment banking or stock brokerage industry, as it was called, maybe I would make an interesting uh, selection for a business that was in real trouble. So Lehman's equity business was losing tens of millions in a year. And they thought that somebody with a strategic idea might be able to figure out a, a better way. And I had nine interviews for the job. And the last was with Dick Fold. And he had, you know, that jutting forehead and, you know, he was really intense. And in the end of the interview, he said, Rod, we're going to give you this job because we know you, we trust you, and we like you. And I thought to myself, well, I'm really pleased because I really wanted the job, but what a ridiculous way to make a decision. <laughs> and uh, I guess that kind of attitude to decision-making followed on. And uh, it, I mean, it was, it was a very kind of tribal and people-oriented culture. Uh, and whereas other investment banks, I think, were more um, professional in the way they approach management, uh, I think Dick Fold was less so. I probably shouldn't have said this, but uh, that was my analytical observation. So right. libelous. Right. Well, just 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 because I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go with my intuition here. So I I read uh, Michael Bloomberg's autobiography, and you know you probably know his career path. He was in he went into Solomon Brothers, right, and then he took his 10 million exit and formed Bloomberg and things. But what he described uh, when he was working there was uh, he talked about how it was a lot paper based and there was needs for information. A lot of what he did when I read uh, when he first formed Bloomberg, obviously it's a brilliant story how he did everything and revolutionized the financial information industry. However, I, I was struck by how similar it was to some of the automation work I did when I was at Johnson & Johnson, automating manual transactions and all that sort of stuff, which was needed uh, on, the, on the trading floor and elsewhere there. So I just wondered, uh, as you talked about the kind of the, the innovation and, and the, I suppose maybe the uh, digitalization of the, the field and, and democratization, all these things at the same time. But uh, I guess you, you witnessed that in your own, in the, in the functions you were operating in as well, right? Yeah, well, when I started in investment banking, two things I remember. One was I didn't have a computer at all. So as an analyst, I used to write my research reports longhand. I remember writing a research report on E.F. Hutton that right. I, wrote, I wrote on a long flight back from California, and I put it in one of those side pockets that are behind the chair of an airplane. 
uh, and I left it there. And uh, there was uh, uh, five hours work done. Uh, that was one thing. Then I also remember a guy who was our salesman in Florida. I won't remember his name because I don't want to insult him, but so he was selling equities to institutions in Florida. And back then, the Wall Street Journal didn't come out in Florida until the next day. So he said he'd spend most of the morning literally just reading the Wall Street Journal to his clients and adding mm -hmm. value that way. So markets have certainly moved on. Well, just picking up on that, there's the famous uh, quote about when Bill Gates uh, Bill Gates had, had was in the process of requesting Warren Buffett to be his mentor, and they ended up around the kitchen table together, and they were both asked independently, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? And they said it would be the ability to read faster. Because, yeah, yeah it's right there, right? It's just, it's yeah. amazing. Wow. Okay. And so then, and so then you, let's talk about when you, we could go there for the, the rest of the conversation, but right. let's, yeah, let's talk about uh, anything else you want to add, any other anecdotes about those players. I think there's, that's a very rich theme there. Wow. Then I'm also curious about anything else you want to share there. And then we'll, we're, we're, where we'll head after that is into you going into entrepreneur land, because that's a journey that I've been on myself and it's, it could be quite steep. You know, that Elon Musk says that um, starting your own business, being a founder is like eating glass and staring into the abyss. It's like eating glass because you have to do a lot of things you don't necessarily enjoy to get the business running. It's like staring to your abyss because you can go under at any time if something goes wrong, depending on what happens. So, but you know, as I think, um, I'd say fellow entrepreneurs, anyone who's the founders uh, in the audience and things like that, be curious to hear that journey. But any other anecdotes or stories about the cast of characters you work with? Did you have any interaction with Drexel or Milken back in the day? Um, a little bit. Um, I, I was recruited once to be an analyst there, but I, I decided not to go there. I mean, look, anybody who's as old as me and has had a career as long as me will have some stories. I'm not sure if you're... <laughs> sure, <laughs> you're no, no. Yeah. sure. Well, just, just, just one, one, little, one little anecdote about when Michael Milken, when he started his career, they, they, uh, I've been to some of the Milken Institute events and things like that. I, you know, I think it, it's really a lot of value there in what they're doing. They said, and he used to, he used to get up and take the, the bus, I guess, from New Jersey into Manhattan back in, when he was early stage of his career. And uh, it was so early in the morning, he'd take the bus at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and he would go in, he'd get on the bus with a stack of uh, bond papers and, and just the, the, the information and he would have one of those little miners lights on his forehead so he could read the, the, the materials on the way to work wow. how things change okay so let's let's fast forward to to you because uh, for me i'm very curious about people's career transitions when you change from being an employee to an entrepreneur that's quite an inflection point i think so what you when you said you went into after you were i guess what was it after uh after so there i suppose I can summarize it quickly. There were several transitions. One was from the U.S. to the U.K. Uh, the next was from Panweb to Lehman, Lehman into management, then uh, into Paribas, which was a different sort of role at a different sort of bank, uh, more European in flavor. And then I just got tired of all that. I guess I really just got exhausted more intellectually than, than from a physical standpoint. I just thought... I'd like to leave working for investment banks and try to do something different. And, and to be perfectly blunt, I stumbled into venture capital. Uh, there's nothing uh, proud about the story. Uh, it was an idea that a colleague, so we were running the, or I was running the financial institutions group at Paribas. Uh, so the global investment banking transactions we were doing with banks and insurance companies and the like. And while, we, while I was there, I was working with a colleague, 
I'll, I'll, I'll name check him because I want to give him credit. UC Lorimer, he was called, a Finnish guy. And um, we just came up with this idea of how financial services was changing and the innovations uh, really brought upon by technology in the financial services sector. And we thought that our clients were not paying attention to those changes. And the idea we came up with was really just a way that our clients could start to identify some of the really exciting things happening both in technology as it related to financial services and niche financial services. And to set your timing, this is 97. Ah. Um, so uh, in the end, we didn't really do anything. We talked to a lot of our clients there. We didn't really do anything with it. He decided, so I quit Paribas, he quit Paribas. He went off to write a book about it. Hmm. I helped him get it published. And then um, he wanted to start a firm which did something around this. I did not feel like an entrepreneur. And I said, no, I didn't want to do that. But then he had a cycling accident and he was, you know, kind of flat on his back in a hospital for a few months. And he just said, look, you're not really doing anything. So why don't you push this up the pitch a bit, if you will, and I'll give you some of the equity. But by mm. the time we come back, we'd raised, I think, about 25 million pounds from the sorts of businesses that we knew, ING, Credit Suisse, Invesco, Bank Boston. So these mm. were all the companies, or many of the companies that I knew from my analyst days. Yes. And he came back and he said, you have to, you have to now do this with me. And he made me chief executive. So he's the founder of the company, but I was there, I was, I guess, the second chief executive. And we started this FinTech VC firm, and this is 1997. So obviously very, very early into the boom and bust of the dot-com uh, um, businesses and those uh, involved in financial services. But it was really exciting. But for those of your audience who are interested in bold, thrusting entrepreneurial, you know, journeys, as I said, I stumbled this into this into this by accident because I felt guilty for my friend in a hospital with whom I had uh, uh, co-developed this idea. The leaving my decision to stop doing that and start doing impact was simply you know as you get older uh, you think about you know what's my meaning in life what legacy am i leaving to my children beyond financial legacy what sort of profound legacy am i leaving to them kids as you know as they get early uh, as they get older uh, pay much more attention to what you do than what you say mm. So I felt it was really important for me to do something that had impact in it. Uh, tried a couple of times to raise a fund, once for the body shop as a um, lead investor, uh, once with Barclays as the lead investor, but we were so early in this impact thing. This was, the first was 2000, the second was 2007, that we just didn't get it over the line. And uh, um, I was I was feeling a bit deflated because I really wanted to do something. We didn't call it the impact space, but just how could I use my sort of ill-gotten skill set to some good use? And luckily at that time, and I'm sorry, this is a long, long story, but luckily at that time, I was doing two things simultaneously, which were really informative as I was sort of trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, one was I was chair of a large national charity called Shelter, the housing and homelessness charity in the UK. Yes. 
which used to hoover up about 50 million pounds a year. And then I also became chair of a very small business run by two immigrant women uh, called Just Giving. Right. Um, so Just Giving had, I don't know, seven employees, including these two women, a Belgian and a, a Pakistani woman. Um, and, but what was so interesting was how little I felt shelter did for homeless people mm. and how much money was wasted on bureaucracy, uh, research, um, advocacy, all this sort of stuff. And so little was spent on homeless. I, I felt guilty being there, wasn't able to change his chair and quit. But here was this little business, Just Giving, which I think raised about five or six million pounds of equity. And lo and behold, they, they, they create a company which does three really important things. One, it reduces the cost to charities of fundraising from 23% to 5%. That's a big disruption. Mm. Secondly, it facilitates the raising of $6 billion for charity and good causes. Quite interesting when you think of what that 5 million pounds of initial investment accomplished. And then the company sells in 2017 for 100 million. So any investor who got in early made 20 times their money. Mm. So I thought to myself, well, this is really interesting. Here's a company which is impactful, successful, and disruptive. Why don't I figure out something that I can do which can help create 100 businesses like this? And that was the idea behind Clearly So. So for the first time, I had a real idea that was entrepreneurial and something I had to do. And we started this investment bank. And uh, actually, the same week Lehman Brothers collapsed, uh, September uh, 2008. Obviously, that was just a coincidence. Yes. But, um, I'll stop there. So that's my that's the only real transition that I kind of feel proud of. The rest were just accidental. Sure. It's funny how way leads on to way sometimes, though, isn't it? Sure. Okay, great. Well, that I think there's that's so to me that's really uh, intriguing. So, shall we talk about your your time in the impact space? Clearly, so I know I know that you've kind of you you've moved beyond that now where you are in life. But I'm in the impact investment space, and and we talked on one of your your other webinars about how in the last eight years has been a hundred fold increase in assets under management in the impact investment space and funds. It used to be all the funds are saying the large, the large billion dollar plus funds are saying there's no shortage of capital. There's a shortage of leadership to deploy it into. And it used to be a case where in order to be, you had to be profitable first to then become sustainable. Now it's a case of at least in the near to midterm, you need to be sustainable in order to remain profitable. So that that's been a, a sea change. And just, just curious about, I suppose your your take on kind of where impact is now, and and uh, I suppose maybe well you talked about the fact that you were a bit too early, and then you know you when you when you started out when you launched 20, 2007, 2008, I guess that's when I got into the field as well around the same time. So I know that that kind of journey that that what what that's been like from from the advisory side where I was working at one of Prince Charles's nonprofits advising IBM, Coca Cola, McKinsey on their sustainability working strategy and benchmarking those top FTSE firms as well. Uh, in the space, but just curious about once you when you formed the firm and you got going, was it easy to get traction in the beginning, or that was around the time of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and all that? What was it like, kind of second time around? Well, so there, were, there were in a sense two starts to the impact thing. So while 
I was still at Catalyst, the fintech VC firm, and, and this would have been 99, really. We thought, let's raise a fund that has an impact orientation. But as I said, we didn't start clearly so until 2008. And we went through many iterations. Because remember, my motivation was, I, I had a motto, create 100 just givings, mm -hmm. but I didn't have a business or a business model. So we, 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 we had a blog, which was taking off. Um, we did some, you know, I was an ex-analyst, so we did some research projects for different firms. And that kind of covered a little bit of the rent, raised a little bit of money, but we didn't really know what to do. Uh, a year or so in, we started with the idea of angel investing into impact. So there was no institutional market, very little interest in impact in the mainstream. So I thought, well, what I'll do is, you know, we had we were besieged by entrepreneurs who wanted help. Uh, and what they wanted more than anything else was money, but there was no available pool of money for these people. So what we did was we started a thing where I just called my old friends in the city and I said, look, why don't, why don't you just come along for an evening of meeting some of these entrepreneurs and, and I'll, I'll offer up 10 entrepreneurs. I'll give you free booze and maybe some meatballs or something. And uh, we started what we called social sector speed dating. So we'd have 10 entrepreneurs, uh, 10 investors, and uh, we did actually transact some business, charged a small fee, and, and that turned into what eventually became Clearly so Angels or Clearly Social Angels. Yes. Uh, which eventually grew to quite a large impact angel network. Um, we, we helped in that journey. We must have helped. Uh, we calculated it once, and this figure is probably out of date. But uh, when we calculated it, we eventually helped like 4,000 social entrepreneurs wow. uh, doing different things, either with conferences or training or, or bringing them along to these meetings or different things. But it wasn't earning any money because the fees on these small transactions rarely covered uh, our expenses. So, I mean, this is not a good way to build a business, but it's the accurate answer to the question you asked. Uh, and then we just started drifting, as investment banks do, into larger transactions. The institutional market started to form. Uh, we, we found that there was quite an appetite in Europe for impact deals. Um, and uh, so a lot of our investor base, especially on the institutional side, but also with, with family offices, um, became continental, not to the United States, because for regulatory purposes, that was almost impossible. Um, so yes. we, we moved to the US, and then we started raising capital for impact funds. And, and, and at the end, I mean, clearly so helped, I think, 200 transactions and uh, helped to facilitate 600 million pounds of deals, which, again, by the old world standards would be puny. That would be you know, half a trade. But in the impact space, that was uh, significant. Yeah. And depending on the, and the, depending on the conversion rate you use, that's, that's, you know, roughly billion dollars, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so you know, that's considering you were pioneering in the industry to get to that, to that, to that point, I think is very noteworthy. 
well, that's why it was good to, uh, you know, and yeah, it's nice. And, and, and I think the team did a great job in, you know, executing those transactions. But, you know, you asked me at the start, what's happened in the impact sector, I think it's now become quite mainstream. So I think all the investment banks are talking about it, all the fund managers are talking about it. In fact, if they're not talking about it, it's something that is uh, really to their detriment. The limited partners of private equity and venture capital funds are insisting on uh, either impact or ESG metrics or, or something that's uh, consonant with the sustainable development goals. And not to do this has become really impossible. So in a sense, the world has changed in a direction that I was really keen on it changing in. And I feel, you know, I feel this is a good time. I, God, I, I certainly hope the political world changes in as positive a way as the investment world changed in those uh, 20 years. Right. And just because of your experience in the industry there, what's your kind of working definition or concept of, of what impact means in this space? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it, something that is socially or ethically or environmentally beneficial, um, it's not avoiding bad things. It's at the same time as you're trying to make a market return, uh, you know, doing something positive. So in the case of Just Giving, which is a business many of you know, uh, it, you know, it raised uh, money for charities. Hard to argue that that's not helping society in some way. Um, you know, other businesses have their impact in the health field. Um, there's a business I'm involved in here in the UK still, uh, well, just as an investor, uh, uh, called Acurex, which is helping in the, the kind of telehealth uh, world very important now in the COVID environment. I mean, obviously trying to make good returns, but at the same time, really have an impact on health. Uh, then there are businesses that are making huge impact in the educational space, tutoring, things like that, uh, or you know, helping people with disabilities to learn. I mean, there are, there are so many areas of impact, but it's not, you know, polluting less. It's, it's really about having a positive, uh, impact. And, and I guess people get very prissy about how that gets mm. measured. I, I think we kind of know when we see it. And I think it doesn't need to be measured in a, in a 30 page report produced by a consulting firm. It can be measured simply in terms of this is the main change we're doing. Think about, let me give you another example, mm. uh, a client of ours, which sadly has subsequently gone under bulb energy. We helped them raise something over 30 million pounds in the early stages of their existence but they help convert something like one and a half million people to green energy. I mean, that's really an impact. These are people that would have been buying energy from the uh, large utilities at a, at a high price. Um, sadly, bulb went under, but that doesn't, again, undermine their impact. Right. And were there any other uh, kind of additional noteworthy or, or names that people may may be familiar with that have that have helped that you that you helped through clearly so or that you were you support on raises and things probably too many to count but <laughs> i mean you know some of them so there were some fund managers we helped who were much larger so businesses like hermes businesses like the european investment bank so these are large organizations partners group these are large organizations uh that people would be familiar with but i'm I'm kind of prouder of the smaller organizations mm. 
that we helped, which people probably haven't heard of, uh, Psychology Online. I mean, you can figure out what they what they do. Their name is now different. It's IESO, but very proud of that. And that was our first investment client. So I'll obviously never forget it. Actually, Blue was our first client, Blue Water, mm. which is a carbon neutral bottled water company. So that's yes. some of your listeners may have heard of. But, you know, one that I'm quite proud of uh, is a company called Oddbox, which I think some people have heard of. Yes. And I think it's a nice little story. Um, for those of for those of your listeners who don't know what Oddbox does, uh, the, the, the trick's in the name. So uh, supermarkets don't take all the fruit that's delivered. If the apples are not the right color or the bananas are not the right shape or, you know, too big, too small, whatever, you know, this food gets thrown away, which in a world of hunger is, is absolutely tragic and actually costly to the supermarkets because they have to pay to um, get rid of this uh, excess fruit. So Oddbox uh, takes these oddly shaped fruits and vegetables off their hands and delivers it uh, to people. And we raised them. I think I think we raised them four million pounds. But in the COVID environment, their home business took off so rapidly, they didn't need the second tranche. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, A luxury problem. <laughs> Yeah, and, and COVID's been interesting because it's really boosted some businesses and it's um, really hurt others, obviously. So yes. uh, it's definitely a mixed bag. But uh, yeah, so, I mean, again, as I said, we've helped 4,000 entrepreneurs to 200 transactions. Uh, these are just some of the ones that I think uh, I feel quite good about. Yes. Well, that's maybe a natural uh, segue into what I call deal making. So I, and I, one of the things that caught my attention when you were speaking and I kind of chuckled to myself on the other uh, conference called webinar you did, I think through the chairman's network was I'm paraphrasing. Now you, you mentioned, I believe you mentioned something to the effect of no kind of, no matter what, almost no matter what you charge for capital raising, it's not enough. This is yeah. So, um, could you talk a bit more about that, what it's like to, to actually be out there capital raising? I know you've done a lot of investment banking work. you worked at some of the big investment banks. But when you're running it, clearly so, doing capital raises, um, talk a bit about more about what it's like to raise money from maybe being based here in London, what that, what that experience is like. Well, um, it's not that different. Um, the, the transactions are no less complex. In fact, in some respects, more complex because you're not just dealing with risk and return, you're dealing with risk, return, and impact, which some people care about, some people pretend to care about, uh, uh, some people don't really care about, but it has to get measured anyway. So there's, at which, which opens up a whole new series, uh, a, a whole new dimension to the transaction. Um, entrepreneurs, so investors sometimes care or don't care. Entrepreneurs, tend to really care and then the negotiation of the extent to which an investor is willing to tolerate that accept that uh, deal with that uh, the entrepreneur's desire to protect the mission all those things really make these transactions very complicated um, so you need the skills of an investment banker plus the insight of an impact person and um, yet because the transaction is a lot smaller you, 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 you cannot afford the people you want to hire. 
So it's really a challenge in our sector because, you know, the opportunity cost for high quality, skillful investment bankers with a conscience is, I mean, that's really high. And I think that's a real challenge for our sector, which is how do you bring in, you know, until these businesses grow to the size of most businesses, uh, how do you make it work? That's a challenge. Right. I don't know if that addressed your question. Oh, it does. I mean, I, I'm going to, we're going to have a, a, a follow on, I'm going to have a follow on episode about kind of deal making 101 or your first 100 million because we cross 100 million capital raising threshold, which for a micro firm, uh, I thought that was, I thought that was a good milestone. Right. And we, we learned a lot of, you know, things like what the, I, I rarely quote um, Steve Bannon, but he's ex Goldman Sachs, ex Navy. And they always say not in the room, not in the deal. Right. There's so many, any talk about, I'm going to cover the experience Ted Turner had with AOL Time Warner, which you were involved in the, in, in, in the industry during that time as well, in terms of if you lose control of a deal or in terms of the, if different interests competing interests, if, if, if there's not a good balance and if you don't um, corral and harness that properly, then you can end up, it can end up uh, going off the rails or at least not getting the desired outcome that was intended in the beginning for different parties. Uh, hopefully in the impact space, that was a little less common where people are trying to quote unquote do the right thing. But It is a bit less common um, because that gets surfaced so early. So you really find out if people have uh, a common uh, set of interests and these are aligned. Um, so I think, and I think we looked after that because of course every transaction, you know, we would, we would, we would have lost the firm if we did a deal that turned out to be not impactful at all. If it was a scandal, it would be, you know, really existential. So I think you just have to be, um, you have to be careful and, and, and out front about that. Okay. That makes sense. And we're going to carry on. We wanted so so basically that's your time to clearly so. And then obviously you're you've got some other advisory positions and things like that, which you you can touch on. I mean, I I know you're involved in different uh, impact funds and things like that, the private equity space. So if you want to comment on that, and then you so yeah maybe if you want to just talk about because I know you also you've been a guest lecturer at Oxford University Business School and things like that. So you're in that portfolio career stage maybe. Uh, where you've got you've got different hats. I know you I know you stood down for some of the roles as you're as you're studying now, but just any commentary on the interesting experiences you've had in those various roles? Well, I stood down at clearly so over a year ago, um, and I I thought I would move out pretty much fully from the impact space, not because I don't love it, but just because I've done that, and I you know some people want to do something forever, and I'm not one of them. Right. Um, I like financial services too, but there was a time to leave that. Um, the one thing I've continued to do in the impact space, uh, that's, or that, that's in the impact investment space, is I sit on the advisory board of Palatine Private Equities Impact Fund. And, I, and I'm really proud of that because Palatine is the first mainstream PE firm that decided of its own accord to do an impact fund and take all the the financial disciplines that have worked so well for them uh, in the private equity space, they're a Manchester-based firm, and, and apply them in the impact space. And they've had a really successful first fund, a hundred million pound fund. Um, and uh, they're in the process now of raising a much larger fund. Um, and I think that's going to go well too. So 
I'm, I'm very proud of that. And that's something I would, you know, I'm delighted to still be involved in. So that's one thing. You asked me to be brief and I'll be brief on the rest. I'll, uh, I uh, am involved in uh, a Dutch NGO, which is trying to change tax policies so that taxes are increased dramatically on polluters, but reduced on uh, income. So labor would be uh, taxed less and pollution would be taxed more. And I think that makes good sense. That's called X-Tax. Uh, I'm also involved with a Vienna-based organization called the Innovation and Politics Institute. That name won't surprise you because, of course, what I'm interested in is yes. in politics. I've also become an Austrian citizen, but how we happen to find each other is really not related to that. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, they are uh, an organization based in Vienna trying to really foster uh, positive innovation in politics to make politics more effective. So I'm very proud of that. And the last one is uh, a, a company uh, based in the UK, actually, called uh, Govid, uh, which is in the epidemiological area. Uh, put it simply, um, they have the view that a lot of government forecasting around COVID was, let's say, politically oriented and that businesses and individuals needed something that was reliable, first rate, but actually factual rather than fanciful. So they started this business and I'm helping them with it. And I'm also, actually, I, I should also say uh, I'm possibly helping a Bulgarian organic entrepreneur uh, so I'm so, but 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 I'm doing this uh, master's degree part time, so that leaves me free to work on projects with people that I like, doing things that I like, and that's a really nice luxury. And something I would suggest to anybody listening, at least once in their life. Indeed. Wow. Okay. So just looking at my, I had some other questions for you. So sure. in terms of if we if we look at your career in in the round kind of to date, what what are I suppose some of the kind of main takeaways? So for example, if you had what what I say is when I worked at, I worked at Johnson Johnson for about seven years doing some transformation integration work in the medical devices industry, and I say I learned a ton there. But I, I have two main takeaways. One was first was it's all about the people, and second what I learned was if you want to be a CEO, you need to get sales experience. So those are the two main takers when I reflect on that period of my career. When you look at the kind of main stages of your career, do you have takeaways? You talk about some of them as you went along, but any particular takeaways that stand out as the lessons learned and or bits of wisdom you took? And, and also following that, things you know now that you wish you knew 20 years ago or earlier? God, there's so many things that come to mind. I mean, the uh, I suppose if I knew how much how much money was going to be made in the uh, investment banking industry after the dot com crash, maybe it, maybe it would have been you know if I knew that maybe I would have stayed a few more years. <laughs> but but, uh, I, but actually, as I look back on my career, um, uh, there aren't that many things that I regret. Um, I, uh, and I, and I, and I'm delighted, uh, of the variety I've been able to enjoy. I would say, I would say, I would say there are three things that come to mind. One is that just by nature, I'm always too early, sometimes way too early. 
And people think that that's a good thing, but being way too early is not a good thing. It's very painful. Um, so I think uh, people need a better sense of timing than I have had. But being really early means you're there at the beginning and you see something for a long time. And that's really interesting if interest is what motivates you. Secondly, I guess for myself, I really like innovation and things that are going through a transitional phase. I just find that fascinating. Again, those two things might be related. And the third thing I would say, and this I feel strongly about, and this I say to my children as well, is that you should just do what you enjoy because if you enjoy something, you'll do it well. And if you do something well, you'll probably do fine financially. Uh, I know a lot of people who've made a lot of money um, and they're not the happiest people. Uh, the people that I know who are the happiest are the people who did the things they really felt passionately about. And some of them are very financially successful, but it was the passion that drove them rather than the uh, financial uh, target. Right. Great. Okay. And I'm just thinking I wanted to, to go a little bit in depth on that as we kind of reach toward the, the, the final sure. segment of the, the interview. So fascinating. So as you were talking about <laughs> the being too early and how it can be painful, I thought about that famous quote, which I picked up from one of my hedge fund contacts, which says it was on the back of his business card, you know, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Yeah. That's the challenge if you're backing a venture. You, say, you, you, you know you've got it, but if the market doesn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, follow on, it can be difficult. But So you mentioned and with your liking innovation, to me that's you've, got great, you've been shown to have great anticipation. It's just a matter of how, how long it takes for the things to follow suit. We talk about your passion about innovation and some of the main transitions and things like that. What do you see as some of the transitions that are happening now? generally say globally that could be you're looking at geopolitics you're looking at uh could be technology funding or, or whatnot and then maybe related to that uh maybe any any thoughts on future direction of travel either of impact and or what's next gen after that if we have a view on that but i know that's a lot but i want to give you something to work with for the next several minutes well um so i and that's that's a, those are really huge questions. Yeah. Pick whichever one um, you want, wherever you might want to start. I tell you what, there are two things that your um, uh, question has prompted, which I think are interesting, and I hope your audience finds interesting. Um, in the UK right now, there are labor shortages across the economy, and lots of people are really worried and. People on one side of the Brexit debate blame Brexit. People on the other side of the Brexit debate, I don't know what they blame. I guess I don't meet that many of them. But I was talking to this Bulgarian entrepreneur, and he says, we're having a labor shortage. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We just lost all these Bulgarians because we sent them home. How come you be, you're, be having, you're having a labor shortage? And then I talked to my friends in France, or I talked to my friends in the Netherlands. I talked to well, my friends all over. And I do spend a lot more time in Europe. So personally, that's become important to me. And everybody's having a labor shortage. So Brexit doesn't explain the labor shortage across Europe. So something is really changing. And, I, and, and again, um, I talked to this Bulgarian. We carried on in this zone. And I said, well, you know, it's really weird because here in the UK, inflation is running at 7%. Wages 
are only growing at three or four percent. People getting twitchy about that, but but actually, it's not surprising that people aren't taking jobs because you know the what, what we're paying. And he says, well, funnily enough, uh, their wages are running faster than inflation, um, both in Romania and in Bulgaria and in in many other places. So something very profound is changing, and and I am not sure what it is, but um, I think the the that individuals are considering rather dramatic changes in the way they're approaching the leisure versus labor calculations they're making themselves. Uh, and people are saying, well, actually, I don't want to do this job. And, you know, people are complaining, especially in the hospitality sector, they have to raise people's prices, you know, uh, sorry, raise people's wages 30, 40%, and they're still struggling. Well, it might be that they need to raise wages 50 or 60 percent, that decades of exploiting people who aren't making very much money to do jobs that we want people to do uh, uh, mean that we have to make a big adjustment. And yes, it means prices on the menu are going to go very fast, but we just have to accommodate ourselves to that. So I think there's been a major fundamental change which I haven't really heard much about. And I think, uh, I think you know, the implications are quite profound. We're going to see very rapid wage growth for certain wages and a lot of pressure and tension in areas like care, health, education, where people, you know, are being paid out of the public purse. There's not a lot of money because we've, we've spent it all, but we're not going to be able to find these people. And it's going to lead to, I think, a series of crises. I think that's one element. Mm. I think second and related is the way people are thinking about their home. Um, I, you know, we've seen a lot of unusual spikes in the prices of homes uh, now, and that's true even in London. Now, th theoretically, people have left London by, by hundreds of thousands. So you could see why people who are saying, well, you know, I'll just decamp to Northumberland and come in once a month. But I think that um, the other calculation that's changing is uh, residence versus other expenditure. And I think because people are spending a lot more time where they live, uh, a lot more of their wealth is going into that than in the past. Again, I don't know if that's true, but this is, is just a, a theory. And the third thing, um, which is more just a, a, a question rather than I don't have a theory on it at all and, and is getting a lot of press, unlike the first two, is the generational divide. Um, you know, we are, I mean, in, a simp in simple terms, you know, the young who had little to fear or less to fear from the COVID virus were asked to isolate to protect the old. And the young are asked to make a lot of sacrifices so we can protect the pensions of the old. And I'm, I'm now old, so I, I know which camp I'm supposed to be in. But mm -hmm. I think that we're ignoring uh, the consequence of this. And then even, even, even yesterday or the day before, the Tories have proposed uh, things around student loans, which will hit students and will hit the poorest students hardest. So I wonder how long our societies are going to get away with 
decisions that um, uh, exploit the young in the interest of the old, because the old vote. So I understand why politicians are doing it, but I, I wonder how long the youth will stand for it. And we haven't seen that tension really spill out yet. So now I guess I'm, I'm getting into my new life, but yeah. uh, those are three things I'm thinking about a lot. I don't know if any of those answer your question, but they were prompted by your question. Well, I, I find it it's illuminating to hear what what's on your radar. And I one of the things that I was impressed with was, uh, I think this is a little while ago, but we talked last time about one of the webinars you had where you had a, a Dutch politician. I forget his name, but you, I think you yeah. know the gentleman. Yeah. Your own Dasselbaum. Yeah. And he commented on some of these sorts of dynamics, the intergenerational, and he was also talking about impact and all of those things. And I remember one of the quotes he said, I'm going to paraphrase here, but uh, I have a reputation for being a straight shooter. Uh, it just works for me. Sometimes it gets me in trouble, but I'd rather be known for that. People at least know where they stand, if they, even if they don't agree with me. So I liked his uh, authenticity and honesty. He said, look, people appreciate honest politicians, and they like politicians who will be, be straight with them about the challenging circumstances that they face ahead. However, so if you take a tough decision that may impact people, you at least let them know they respect that. However, once the decisions have been taken, you may once the impacts are, are felt, the effects, you may not be voted back into office. Yeah, that is one of the problems of politics. I thought he was incredibly impressive. And it's really interesting because that um, that podcast uh, was him and Joseph Stiglitz, yes. who was incredibly famous. But a lot more people have commented to me on the things Dasselblum said rather than the things uh, Stieglitz said, maybe because they've read his books already many times. But uh, I just think that's interesting. Yeah, and it is one of the problems in politics. And, and I think, I think um, politics as, as an institution has serious problems. I mean, we see the ramifications of it. But, mm. you know, because politicians want to get elected and have to get elected, they have to say things that will, rather than be truthful or accurate or even in the national interest, they'll have to say the things that will get them elected. And they keep saying things that will get them elected. And nobody wants to say the things that we really need to hear as a society uh, around the things we need to invest in and support. And, and eventually that, that, will, that will become untenable. You can't keep, and we're finding this now, and uh, I, I don't know where that leads. It, it, uh, it, it maybe means that, I don't know, electoral politics has some serious challenges and we have to think differently about the way we do the things we want our societies to do. But again, I'm not sure your audience is interested in that. I am, but I've left business and gone into uh, academia. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I just wanted to, maybe we can have one comment and I wanted to just mention one or two points about what, where I have seen some innovation in politics, uh, but I just want to mention something. So one of the other impressive politicians I've met, because I, like I said, I was working for one of Prince Charles's organizations. So we had access to senior royals and, and certain uh, heads of state and things like that was uh, the former president of Costa Rica, Jose Maria Figueres who was involved in the carbon war room with Richard Branson, you know, several years back. And other than having one of the firmest handshakes I've ever experienced from anyone, he talked about when he was on platform at one of our events, uh, that because he didn't care about being reelected, I think he went in for maybe a single term there and he just went in to try to 
really revolutionized in a positive way and to make more sustainable the, the Costa Rican economy. So he made a lot of tough decisions, knowing that, um, to the point about your other uh, colleague, the politician, about you, you, we're going to tell the people the truth, but we'll make some, some tough decisions, which you think are in the, for the best interest of the sustainability of the country long term, even if I have to take a hit personally. Which, which is a very unusual stance for most politicians to take these days. But he seemed to, from what I recall, he had a pretty good record on, on the innovations he, he drove in Costa Rica, at least from a sustainability perspective. But just to pick up on innovation politics, one of my, there's a guy called Daniel Priestley who I follow, and he's, he runs accelerators and incubators for uh, micro businesses and for experts and authorities. And he mentioned that, uh, Basically, we were seeing lots of things, lots of increases in customization and lots of micro surveys. And I see them coming in my inbox now with the U.S. elections that are always midterm elections and they start the U.S. election cycles almost constantly running, depending on the, the national and, and local elections. I'm getting lots of emails saying, you know, Carl, could you please take this micro survey about what are the most important issues for you? So they're doing that. And then they're, they're doing a lot of that uh, micro targeting. So based on what you say, that's how they're, they're taking those data points to adjust the, the direction of the campaigns. And they're also doing some of these personalized videos out to people to try to get them more engaged. So I see that the, the technology angle, I don't know how much it changes things in the, let's say, in, in the halls of the policymakers. But in terms of the way campaigning is done, I mean, Obama in America really, really uh, was pioneered the online uh, fundraising. And then now they're they're following on the next show. People say, uh, Dan Priestley says, if you want to see the, where the, the uh, innovation is coming from in marketing, look at what's happening in the U.S. political campaigning uh, techniques they're using, and that tends to flow into marketing. So micro surveys and videos and targeting and all of that. Don't know if you have a view on that in terms of how much of a difference it may make, but that's one thing I saw. It's making a huge difference. Uh, it suggests that our politicians are no longer leaders with a vision as to where the country needs to head, but just followers. Um, in other words, checking what will win them votes and then doing it. But actually, that to me raises an even more profound point. So in the old days in Athens, everybody got together and they, you know, the city, well, not, not everybody, because women and slaves were excluded, but let's put that to the side. But something like the polis got together and made decisions. And then, apart from the Swiss cantons, um, that, and even there, they don't all get together. Let's not go off in that tangent. But, you know, as we moved forward, we couldn't do that. I know in Iceland, they also all got together once every two or three years. We can't do that. So we had representatives and representatives were supposed to act on our behalf and in our best interest. And they're clearly not acting on our behalf and they're clearly not acting in our best interest. But actually, now that we have the technology to know what everybody thinks, why do we need representatives at all? We can find out exactly what people want. And we don't need somebody to speak on our behalf because they're not speaking on our behalf. Uh, some of them are corrupt and are rent seeking. Some of them are just looking for their own narrow political interest. Um, but in any event, they're not doing what we might want them to do. And given that we now have the technology to express real time, all day long, any day, what we want, maybe the relevance of representative democracy is diminishing. But again, that's a much bigger point. Yes. So, 
I agree with what you say, but I think it has far-reaching implications. Yes. Well, one of the projects that I'm working on now, actually, well, to, to, to wrap up where we started from, uh, <clears throat> I'm a board advisor for several companies, one of which is a three-in-one artificial intelligence business that uh, has built an engine in different industries. But they've got, they have the development teams in Ukraine and Russia. So now that that's they had the evacuation plans and things they've now moved to poland and things like that but one of the reasons why we started that company my colleague is running the the tech side of it he's doing most of it i'm just advising but and contributing my own media perspective it's about depolarizing media and having kind of nonpartisan news and things like that which there's a huge need for now and in reality as we were talking we were saying well in certain countries, maybe if this model were to catch on in the U.S., which, as we know, some of the smaller players have actually grown into quite large players like Joe Rogan and others. Joe Rogan has a larger audience than a lot of the big mainstream news channels. But really having a, a neutral platform for dissemination of news and information actually is almost like a de facto third party in a way, because otherwise the, the two parties in the U.S. have such control over their respective echo chambers. It's hard to get a word in edgewise if you're not in either one camp, squarely in one of the other camps which is a really fascinating uh, potential consequence of trying to have a platform like this. And I know Oprah just talked to Iger from you know, Disney and things about having her starting a nonpartisan news platform. But we see that as having lots of legs and, and being a real need, what I call depolarizing, because if you think back uh, just a little bit of history from, from uh, you know, the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, they asked, this comes from an interview, Tony Robbins interviewed Gorbachev and said, I want to know what was it? They had a three hour uh, airplane flight together and he asked Gorbachev what was it that really took took the wall down so Gorbachev gave him kind of the official canonical answer from the history book and then Tony Robbins says yeah yeah I, I read that I know that but what was it really between you and Reagan that actually allowed this breakthrough and he said well we were we were in a room Gorbachev said well, I was sitting in a, in a room with Reagan we were negotiating and we were there were, it was an antagonistic vibe and we weren't getting anywhere he said Ronald Reagan got up uh, stood up from his chair walked into the corner kind of calmed himself down and came back, smiled and put his hand out and said, hi, I'm Ronnie and we need to start over. And basically there were reasons why, but Reagan said he thought he knew that Gorbachev had, had was passionate about children's causes and things like that. And he thought, well, this man can't be all evil if he's trying to help underprivileged children, all this stuff. So maybe let's stop demonizing one another and let's actually reopen up a dialogue. And that's, that's what was, what the, the, the breakthrough was because Gorbachev kind of chuckled and laughed and they saw each other as human beings again, rather than as just from partisan and uh, polemic. And they're actually able to have a breakthrough. So that's for me, I see that that's when I talk about depolarizing media. Once we get into the range where the, the opposing parties start to demonize one another, it becomes quite dangerous. Wow. Well, I think, first of all, that's a great story. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of uh, research, I think, in conflict resolution. Uh, which suggests that if you can simply repeat the other person's side of the argument, uh, maybe you see the world a lot differently. And maybe that's something that um, Putin and Biden uh, should try to do. One of the organizations I'm involved in, which I've mentioned, um, the Institute, sorry, the Innovation and Politics Institute, has a project they're working on, which I guess ties a couple of themes together that we've talked about, Carl. It's called DemTech. And, you know, tech has has <laughs> permeated all sectors, but not so much democracy. But they think there is a growing dem tech sector, which picks up on the themes you just talked about, which is what are the platforms that can actually encourage 
depolarized cooperation. I mean, I look, a lot of people put themselves forward as non-political. I don't know how non-political Oprah is or isn't. Sure. Some people have one view on that. Some people have another. But there are platforms which can depolarize. And I think that there's a future there, which I'm keen to explore. Great. Well, as we as we look to kind of wrap up, I've got one or two quick rapid fire questions for us. Thank you so much. This has been really fascinating and illuminating for me. Uh, I'm kind of I was kind of geeking out there on some of the when you started mentioning the names of the people you work with. I said I got to ask one or two follow ups. But uh, so so looking ahead, kind of what are what are you? Uh, here are the questions. What are you most excited about looking ahead? And uh, what's on your reading list? And anything else you want to tell us? Oh. Um... Well, I'm most excited about Demtech because I think I, I think we do need to do away with many aspects of representative democracy. I think elections perpetuate the idea that we're living in democracies, where I think we've moved away from them because of some of the things we've talked about. Uh, most of the things on my reading list are the incredibly voluminous readings that I'm getting. Uh, <laughs> in uh, at school so i don't have time uh, uh to do a lot of reading uh i'm i'm reading oh god i, I have it in the other room sorry I, I i'm reading a book by umberto echo it's something like the flame of solana very interesting my book club has just uh, uh asked me to read call call me by your name i think uh which um I don't know what it's about, but I've just got that. So that's what I'm reading. I'm, I'm trying to read within politics, not related to my course, but some of the, the great books of politics, because somehow we, we, we don't ever fully read them. You know, Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, mm. John Rawls' Theory of Justice, a guy called Robert Dahl, who uh, wrote, you know, Democracy and its Critics. I'm trying to read some of the great books of politics. You know, I haven't gotten around to Hobbes' Leviathan or uh, Locke's treaties, but uh, I've just pulled out the Communist Manifesto because I think I should read that. Uh, so I think it's really important to cut across the piece <laughs> as you're uh, uh, studying something. So I'm trying to read the great books. I'm trying uh, not to give up completely on uh, uh, fiction. And I actually make a list of all the fiction I read because uh, I'm always trying to compel myself to read more and more. Um, and uh, but nothing, nothing particularly comes to mind that's been so terrific lately. Sorry. Okay, great. That's that's a lot. So <laughs> I, I, there's so much here. So just as we're wrapping up, okay. So I mean, look, it's been it's been outstanding having you here. And so we've covered a lot of ground, politics, uh, capital raising, investment banking, innovation, everything. Is there anything else you'd like to add as we're kind of wrapping up? Um, no, I think we've I think we've covered a lot of territory. I, I, I just think that the period ahead for us will be very different for all of us. And uh, I hope that we can figure it out and that uh, leaders emerge that can help us to figure it out. I do think, I do think 
you know, the only, I mean, I, I hate ending on a, on a dark note, but uh, as it's popped into my head, uh, in my life, there were times when there were some great leaders about, uh, sometimes people you agreed with, sometimes people you didn't agree with, you know, I, I would, uh, I put Margaret Thatcher in the category of great leaders, lots of people didn't like her at all, but she was a great leader. Um, some people would put John Kennedy in that category. Lots of people didn't like him, but he was a great leader. And I really wish we could find some great leaders emerging because we need them now more than ever. Well, as they say, yeah. I, what I what I witnessed, at least here in the West, during when the pandemic first started, was there are leadership crises, and then there are crises of leadership. I think this mm. was maybe the latter. And uh, and just to say. Um, I'm going to quote Jim Rohn, who, who is, uh, what they say, America's foremost business philosopher, was actually Tony Robbins' mentor. But he used to say, well, that he was once asked um, by a boardroom, some big publicly traded company. They said, Jim, can you tell us what does the future hold? And he leaned forward. And he said, gentlemen, you've asked the right person. I can tell you what the future holds. And they all leaned forward. So tell us. I said, well, the next 10 years will be about like the last 10 years. Uh, opportunity mixed with difficulty. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, well, actually, if I were leaning forward, I would say the next 10 years will not be like the last 10 years. <laughs> well, he was saying in that it's an opportunity makes yeah, it difficult, yeah, but different opportunities, yeah. different difficulties, right? Well, great. So we, we're left with the, the Chinese mixed blessing of may you live in interesting times. Yeah. Well, Rod, it's been it's been a real treat to have you having you here. Um, how can our listeners keep in touch with you or follow you? Well, um. I mean, I don't really tweet as much anymore. So I'm on Twitter as Rodney Schwartz. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn um, and always, you know, am happy for people to get in touch. I think those are probably the best ways to get in touch with me. Okay, great. Well, we'll provide those links in the episode notes. Fabulous. Carl, great talking to you and, and, uh, and thank you all. Thank you. We'll be in touch. All the best. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye. That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for the latest insights and hidden gems from the world of business. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. For any feedback, suggestions, or questions you'd like us to cover, you can email us at krego at lxauk.com and on LinkedIn at karl-rego. Until next time, onwards and upwards. And thank you for listening. Rego's Review, signing off.